Hello, welcome back to Creative Chit Chat. I'm Ryan McLeod and this is episode number 81 um, and my guest this week is Frances Brown. Um, I don't actually think I asked her how she would describe herself. I mean, I would say she's a designer, I don't know if that's what she would say she is, but yeah, she's a designer. Yeah, let's go with that. I, I mean, I first met her when I was doing my master's at DJ CAD, um, master's in design. She was on the same course, and then she went off to do PhD um, and then various other things before she started working on the Queen's Young Leaders program, um, which she's been doing for the last sort of four years. Um, and we sort of go into the challenges around that, and there was also a lot of it was done online, and so how you create a really valuable program when no one's really in the room. The, the program itself brought uh, brings together or brought together. Sorry, it's now after four years. It is now finished. Um, I think it it's worked with. I think it's over five hundred um, individuals who have amazing projects or businesses um, that have a community or a social focus. Um, and I mean, there's absolutely everything that you could could imagine in there. Some amazing, just loads of phenomenal projects doing real good um, all around the sort of Commonwealth countries and Francis has sort of been I suppose in some well leading the programme that mentors them and, and helps them build up the skills and build up the exposure to take their um, enterprises or businesses or, or whatever you call them to the to that next stage or to the next step or to help it grow um, and she talks about that and her role uh, beyond that so the new role that she's taken on shortly um, yeah, but how they're utilising that network of people now, these these Queen's Young leaders, um, to actually build and grow the next stage of this sort of um, sort of empowerment throughout the, the Commonwealth. But yeah, um, I learned I learned a lot about Francis that I didn't know before uh, when we had the chat, <laughs> like the, the way that she sort of kind of blagged her way through university and how that made her sort of fall out of love with it. Um, which is, yeah, it was pretty fascinating. Uh, but then also towards the end, we, we talk about the certain podcast called The Griefcast that um, Frances has found uh, really helpful. And as she's going, her, her mum is going through cancer treatment at the moment. She talks about that very openly. And this grief cast is something that's got her through it. And I think we mentioned it briefly in the episode, but we just don't talk about death enough. Um, it is a big taboo. I don't know if it's just a, it's definitely a British thing, but I don't know how far that extends or whether there's other cultures and countries that deal with that a lot better. But um, we seem to shy away from it and then it almost hits us 10 times harder. Um, and Francis talks about, um, I think it's called preemptive grief or um, anticipatory grief or something like that. Um, which makes a hell of a lot of sense, but only once that's actually explained to you. So helping, actually talking about it and uh, facilitating those discussions and doing that in a sort of funny and interesting way. Um, yeah, it's really helpful. And yeah, if it's something that you'd like to find out more, you, the link is in the show notes uh, for the Griefcast. And also, I mean, Francis goes through... Uh, and talks about her um, her battle with mental health uh, issues throughout her career, um, and I mean, I suppose she's in the sort of privileged position that she's managed to, to sort of work out what her tell is, um, and for her, it's sort of um, been able to read and concentrate and focus, and that sort of uh, came about 
in her PhD where she was having real difficulty um, and sort of bouts of depression, but didn't really identify it as that. Um, and she's now in the great position where she's able to identify it when it comes around and what it is and how to address that. Um, and it's probably a luxury that not that everyone doesn't have, for sure. Um, so it's really interesting to hear her talk openly and honestly about the mental health issues that she's gone through and the sort of stigmas of those, that and everything else. So yeah, it's a real, a real open and honest episode this week. Um, a real insight into into Francis's life so far. Um, yeah, that's. But I mean, I've gone on now, haven't I? That's loads. I should have just let the episode get started. Anyway, yeah. So if you are new to the podcast, um, best way to keep up to date with everything is at ccc dundee on twitter and instagram facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash ccc dundee or we're on any good podcasting platform or spotify or whatever so find us there but let's get into the episode so this is number 81 and this is with francis brown i suppose i always always wanted to be an artist always wanted to go to art school used to do the kids kids classes at dj cadway before I was in high school and then high school and final year, that was all I wanted to do, I was just working towards portfolio and I was so bad at maths and my maths teacher said, don't come anymore, you can just go to art and that was quite important for me, I think, you know, he recognised that maths was not for me, it was double maths every morning at nine and I think when you're that age that's not for everyone. So I just went to art and I was the only person from Harris that got in to an art school that year. Um, I applied to Glasgow, didn't get in. But I was all right with that in the end because I didn't really like it when I went with my portfolio. <laughs> then I came to DJ CAD, did general course. Was quite interested in art until I did sculpture. And I'd just gone out partying a lot. And then it was like the night before the hand-in. And I just, like the one I'd kind of done a bit on just didn't work. So I filled three different cylinders and then bashed them out. And one was a toilet tube, so it had the line. Um, and one had bubbles. So I said like it was the... Um, fault lines in the earth and magma pockets and did this whole poster about geology and got an A and I thought I can't do art anymore because it's too easy to to like I didn't believe it you know I think artists need to believe and I was just getting by by being a good storyteller and so I knew that that wasn't really my thing so then went to do textiles and I really didn't get on well with that either because I would wanted to put things on things and for the first years of textiles it's presented in a box and I was always getting in trouble for drawing it on a figure or doing whatever so went down to London worked for Tatty Divine who's a jewellery company um, way back when they had just the tiny little Brooklyn shop and a few of us in the back doing design and manufacture there then I decided not to go back to Dundee go and do fashion in Huddersfield so went there didn't need to interview or anything because I'd done two years already so I just went over and Huddersfield was great but it was really manufacture based and I as we've covered can't do maths and so that really kind of made an issue because pattern cutting all that kind of thing is very technical people think fashion school is kind of a you know Mickey Mouse colouring in but it's incredibly detailed and if you don't have that kind of mind it's quite hard Um I'm not sure if I should say some of these things, but, um, you know, I got through that degree because I used to trade sketch mark 
sketchbook work for um, pattern cutting. So I would make other people's sketchbooks and leave gaps in them and then we'd swap them for patterns that they would do. And I had this amazing technician who just got so fed up of me being awful that she did most of my sewing. It's and like then I just of, brought her cakes. Yeah. <laughs> I was entrepreneurial. Yeah, it's like you sort of um, turned university into a game that you just needed to complete. Oh, I know. It was... I think... I've never been someone who's good at practising. I like to be good if I'm good. And then, you know, it's a bit of a cop-out, but I had three rounds of music tuition and can't play anything because I'm just not a practiser. I don't know. It's really cocky when you say it like that, but I knew how to get through it without... So do you mean that you... That like the that repetition of something, like trying it over and over, it just doesn't appeal to you at all? No, not at all. Um... Yeah. Yeah, they got it. Or you, you I'm don't. a bit seat of my pants on things, and I think that's how I do the best work. If I get really excited, I'm not great with detail, which you know probably come to later in my career. But <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, so I did that, and then um, it was a sandwich course. So the middle, the third year of the four, everyone went to do work experience. But I'd already done about three years, two years of that. So I set up a business, which um, was called Something Found and was a retailer of different graduate work from around Britain um, and also a wholesaler which was doing ethical jewellery at a time when nobody really was. Um, so I put a call out to like everybody I knew and through like all my aunties, everything, just for people to send me their broken jewellery and tights. So I was just getting these huge parcels of like stuff through the post for free and then I'd just break them all down and make new stuff and I'd wash all the tights and weave them into cuffs which I could sell for 20 quid and they'd go on to be sold for like 40 or 50 quid in these upmarket ethical shops. So I wasn't paying any materials. But again, I guess it was a bit cynical. It was the same sort of thing of, oh, I've seen this niche where I can make a lot of money and that money will enable me to run something found, which didn't make a lot of money, but I loved it. Um, I certainly wasn't ethical at the time. I was just like, oh easy this is good so I did that was in a bunch of like um department stores and stuff but the bit that I just loved all the way through was all the people who had amazing products and they'd come to me to sell and I'd have to spend a lot of time helping them price things up work on their branding work on like their invoicing all that kind of business development stuff um, and that was what I really loved and I think there got to a point when I think it was the same way with the art of I didn't believe it and because I wasn't really believing in the stuff I was making I'd get a new wholesale order in and I taught my boyfriend how to weave the cuffs and we'd just sit for hours and hours and I'd be making things but it wasn't my heart wasn't in it and so it really put me off making things for years so I closed those businesses and came up and met you and then we went to <laughs> do Master of Design with Hazel. Yeah, so what what was the appeal of, of Master of Design then? I don't remember. <laughs> I knew that I wanted to quit the businesses and I knew I was really interested in why all these amazing people were leaving university without what they needed. And I think first I went to Hazel and asked about the craft one because there was a small amount of time where there was maybe a craft enterprise one. I might be remembering that wrong. Um, and she said no have a look at this master design and then I just came up and did it it was great really enjoyed that we had a good class I thought it was quite fun so what did you feel that you got 
out of that year then? I think, you know, if I'm very self-critical, I do a lot of things on instinct and that year was very good for backing up maybe what I was intuiting with learning how to really handle stats and do the research properly and communicate what I believed or what I knew because just believing something isn't enough and so that was really good. I really enjoyed that and I think that course was really good at giving you freedom Mm -hmm. and I think you know that's what was so good about that maths teacher who like my friends will say I'm a rebel without a cause and it's true you know like (laughs) I like a little bit of a boundary push sometimes even though I might not need to but I think in Hazel's group you know I said oh I want to go down south for two weeks and interview these people and she was like yep fine come in when you're back and that kind of freedom really worked for me kind of made me feel in control of that sort of stuff um and just meeting loads of new people that was good you know our class was really mixed um made some good friends from overseas Malvika who I went to her wedding in India and stuff and that was just great it was really good for getting me out of my I think I had quite a siloed vision at that point um I was definitely precocious it's funny when you look back and I'm like, oh, that was embarrassing. Like, <laughs> like I wrote a letter to the to Pete Downs, who was the head of Dundee Uni, being like, I really think that you are not giving enough entrepreneurial education to your students. And I'd like mapped out a whole report of what I think he should do. And I'd like, because I'd been working with the business centre. And then I'd set up that little, with Lizette Drucker, who was doing product design, I think. Um, I like creative enterprise club and then I like got a PhD and just left so poor poor Lizette was like oh okay I'll do it then um but she's great and she went on to um then go down to London and now she's in Coventry doing awesome stuff with car design and materials and stuff anyway she's very cool um but yeah I was definitely precocious at that point and Gillian Eason she gave me my first paying job in design I think so she was like, come up with these materials that we can put with the Nestor Toolkit when they had the Nestor Toolkit website. That was definitely my first bit of paid work. And when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, that was shoddy. But it was nice of her to, you know, maybe it wasn't shoddy for the age that I was at or the experience. But I think it's unnatural for you to look back and there's a certain level of... Because uh, <clears throat> you go through your career and you improve the quality yeah. of your work constantly, right? I mean, that's that's the aim anyway. Yeah. So you're always going to look down on the things that you've done before. Sure. So yeah. it's only a natural feeling it to is, look back yeah. and go... Oh, I'm just like, oh, thanks, Gillian. Like, at the time, it was nice to have someone, like, believe in you, I think. Mm-hmm. That's quite good. I think, yeah, you need that at points in your career, especially yeah. coming out. I mean, having done that university course and then going back into the working world, yeah, you need that. You need yeah. That. Um, and that was you know probably pretty pivotal in that Hazel taught the course and um, Jonathan Baldwin taught a module and he was the one that got me my job at Queen's Young Leaders and uh, I went off to do a PhD on um, well the long title was you know have you heard of uh, Pimp My Thesis no and uh, so PhD people they write like their proper heading and then what it really means so mine was um, a service design analysis of creative enterprise education in UK higher education institutions 
And my like pimp my thesis title was Everybody's Unhappy. <sighs> so I just done loads and loads of research around universities and you know, it was basically like the students weren't getting the education that they needed that would make them be able to make their own income fast enough. On average it takes like at the time when I was doing the PhD, three or four years before they're making a comfortable wage from what they're creating. Um, so it was kind of my PhD was looking at how do you close that gap? But, you know, students weren't getting what they needed. Staff were totally underfunded, as usual, with all these stories. Or, you know, you had a teacher who was a textile teacher and had been a textile employee and was great at what they did, but they hadn't done it themselves. And suddenly they're being taught, they're being told to teach entrepreneurial skills, but they've never done it. So then, they're, you know, there's quite a lot of discomfort around that. Um, I never finished a PhD because... Did it. So, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm interested to to see what what came out of that anyway, even though you didn't complete it. So what? F- I've written about ninety thousand, ninety five ish thousand words. Right. And is that any, does that exist anywhere in the world, or just in a notepad, or a, no? So I I like published it. I linked up with Nat Q Create, who's a national. I'm gonna get this wrong. Consortium of University Entrepreneurs, something like that. Um, and they paid to have it designed and printed. So I basically took what was the outcome of the PhD and made it into a free handbook because I just thought the content was would be so much more valuable if it could be put into the hands of the people creating these proje- these programmes or teaching than it would have been going to academics, but I think. And that was good. Like It felt good being out there. and pe- I was getting messages from Indonesia and all sorts of places saying they've got a copy and they were running it. So that was quite exciting for me, but I know it wasn't it wasn't great for the old academic part. Um, but I, I still think the, the the title and what it addresses that still exists. There's still a massive yeah. issue with that, and yeah. it's I don't think it's going to be something that's going to be easily solved or solved anytime soon. No, and I think it wasn't that I hated the PhD. I think it was that um, I had under like undiagnosed depression quite badly. Um, I only found out maybe a year and a half, two years ago. Um, But looking back, I've known for a long time, or I haven't known, but something's been wrong. It was funny that my um, PhD supervisor, Martin Woolley, great guy down at Coventry, and actually, because it's so incestuous, used to work with Mike and Hazel in Sheffield. So there was all these links, but he'd said, do you think you might be depressed? And I was like, no, just having a bad day. Like, I just had no idea, I just didn't know what it was. And but my depression shows when it's really bad that I can't read, like I just can't take anything in. And so I basically done a lit review at the start, being an idiot. This is a theme of this, of like thinking that I knew what I was doing from the masters. So I hadn't gone to all those how to do this thing, and instead of properly referencing everything I'd read, I'd done like post its and a big fancy chart on the wall, and it made sense at the time. But then. I put it away and I couldn't read my writing so I essentially to finish that PhD would have had to redo the whole lit review and it was at a time when I just couldn't get that kind of information into me so I stepped away from it um, but mainly because I had a new job as well and I was just very busy couldn't do both of them but yeah looking back I think had I known that it might have been easier for me to get help then and finish it so I know I would say oh because I hate it but it's all, I just couldn't do the work at that time so I think it's quite common. A lot of people suffer from bad mental health when they're doing PhDs because it's quite isolating. Um, but then I did try and pick it up again later and Mike Press was going to be my external examiner and my supervisor Martin had 
just been the examiner for Francis Stevenson. So they kind of swapped PhD students, but I never finished it. But thanks, Mike, for saying you would anyway. Um, then I don't know what I was doing. Uh, I was doing consultancy stuff. So um, there was a university down in London that had some real trouble around um, visas. And so they got in kind of a big lot of trouble because it was found that people coming to do their studies weren't studying, but they were using it to get into the country and then going on to work and whatnot. So they got reprimanded and it meant that their students, who were current students, were hit with this big thing of, oh, now I'm doing a degree at university that's been tarnished to this level. What does that mean for my degree? Um, so I went down and worked with them. It was They had a raft of design modules, um, courses that were in line for being closed because their student satisfaction surveys were so low. So I worked with them to up those, do some consultancies and figure out how we could turn that around. And we managed to up the NSS by about 40%, which is huge. Um, I was really proud of that, actually. It was good. wasn't the easiest job that. There was definitely times when I think the particularly graphic design, like <laughs> that was all run by this group of men and they did not like me. Because <laughs> I rolled up, I was like 27 or 28. And I was like, come on, let's do this. And I remember one time talking to them and they all, they'd all come out on their wheelie chairs. And as I was talking, they were just wheeling away back into their cubbies. And I was like, um, it's not my job on the line. Like, so can we just talk about this? But that was a good learning curve as well of, you know, how to approach groups like that. That was good. Then I worked at a business incubator uh, down in London as well, helping new businesses start, creative businesses mainly, or kind of lifestyle businesses. And then I quit that and I went to do my PhD again. And so Hazel, uh, I asked Hazel if I could come and work in her... By then the course was service design course whereas when we did it it was master of design so I became a um what's it called like a designer in residence or whatever and used to run help out with some of the programs and do bits and bobs with them which was cool um and then I was on holiday in India for our friend Malvika's wedding and uh I heard from Jonathan Baldwin he sent me a LinkedIn and said I think you need to apply for this job um, and I was like, all right then. So I did, and I applied, and then the interview came up and in India. So I had to like dip out of Malvika's wedding for a, for an hour or so and do the Skype for the interview. And it was good. Like, obviously, I got the job. <laughs> but it was funny. Like, I was so comfortable on the YouTube. On the YouTube. <laughs> like, you're nan. On the YouTube. <laughs> on Skype. Um... That I think that came across and I embarrassed myself at the end because they were like, oh, anything else? And I was like, oh, and I love the Queen. Um, but I didn't mean it like that. I just meant, <laughs> like, my granny was a big Queen lover. So, like, when she died, I got a lot of her memorabilia. And I was like, oh, that's nice. She would have been, like, dead proud of this job, um, which I should probably explain, shouldn't I? Yeah, so well, the, the job was obviously, I mean, I don't know what the title was, but it was for the Queen's Young Leaders. Yeah. Um. So the Queen's Young Leaders was set up for... Queen Elizabeth's Diamond Jubilee um, and so it was kind of to celebrate the fact that she became Queen at 25 um, so she was young and she had all that kind of pressure put on her and so the Queen's Young Leaders was set up to celebrate 
60 young people a year for four years. Um, but in real reality, it was twice that because we had runners up too. So each year was about 120. We have 522 in total at the end. It was a four-year programme which just finished uh, last week, actually, on the 1st of February. I finished that contract. Um, so these were people from all the Commonwealth countries. So 53 countries. Maldives left in the middle. Um, and Gambia's with us now, but we didn't have any winners from there. Um, and I was given a task to come up with a programme of training that would essentially wrap what they were doing already. So they'd won an award, and they'd won an award for a couple of things. One, overcoming, um, overcoming a big issue. So it could be that they... Um, so when you say they, you mean the, the individual? The Queensland leaders, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, so they were selected. Comic Relief is, was a partner on that and the Royal Commonwealth Society. Um, and I was employed by Cambridge, so it was a big partnership. And then obviously the trust that managed the money. Um, so to be selected, they had to overcome a challenge. We had to be able to see potential um, in them. And so we picked, well, I didn't pick. Comic Relief picked and then handed them over to me, which is probably right, so I didn't have any favourite like before we started but um, so they would be 18 to 29 and um, did all sorts of stuff you know like uh, activism against FGM um, one girl kind of set up an almost underground railroad for um, women who were um, being abused so kind of be able to get them away from their partners um, using that model of um, you know from the, from America uh, that would protect slaves that were travelling north so it was essentially that kind of a situation but for women who were suffering from domestic violence we had um, a guy whose dad um, had set up a foundation that retrained the child soldiers after the Sierra Leone wars and would retrain them and kind of help them get settled and where he could get them into families stuff like that um, and then when Ebola broke out he just Googled how to build a hospital. He Googled it and then he built an Ebola hospital and they fought it by like figuring out what you needed to build it, what you needed to fundraise to get in there. Um, I mean, there's 522 stories I could tell you, but it covers everything from sort of like illness to human rights, feminism, um, things about LGBT, things about bullying, sports, disability, anything that you can think of that is an area of development. Um, and then they would come to me. So what the main reason that they would come is that for a lot of them, they were doing it because something had happened. So say they'd had a little brother that had died of something. It was a trigger point. So most of them had a trigger point of either something happened to them or something they knew that made them think, I need to do something to help this. But what happened is they maybe got a bit of a claim or they got some funding and suddenly they have 40, 50 employees and they've never had any training. So they're all doing it just kind of off the cuff and they're doing a great thing, but you get to a point where you things are going to go awry if you don't have some training. So then the programme that I wrote for that would include a lot of self-reflection at the start about where they came from, um, what their values look like, why they have those values and beliefs, um, a bit of a look about maybe what their kind of trauma might be to the stage and how you make sure that doesn't impact on things that you're doing. Um, 
values, ethics, we do bits on, um, you know, your more practical marketing and branding and team building and anything you need to make a kind of charity sustainable. And then I also... So they were all, all the, the sort of projects that were set up, they're all as, as charities then? Charities, uh, not-for-profits. Um, some of them were smaller. They were kind of like community projects. Um, so they would come and it was about how can we... Um, the whole programme was based on three things. It was um, increase their confidence. So by the end of the year, they should be a lot more confident. We should have given them the tools to increase the impact, whether that was geographical or the amount of people met or the amount of needs being met and finally to give them the confidence to empower the communities they work with so that more and more of the roles within that charity could be taken on by the community itself allowing that young leader to step back maybe look at the next project and help them feel secure enough to hand over their babies because you know some of them have started from scratch when they were 15 in their living room and now it's this big thing and there's an ownership issue with that of just nervousness about if I step away from this it's going to go but the programme was really about saying look you've got the power to start these things and build a movement and so how do we help you go on to that next step and it was great and they were great and it was an amazing programme so how did it so you said obviously it ran for four years mm-hmm. um, and so each sort of cycle of that was was one year yeah so how does that how does that year break down how what was the actual like logistics of it so it's based at, at cambridge all online ah okay yeah so um but you were based at cambridge i was based at cambridge yeah in a in a wee room on my own um yeah so at the start we were just brought in to run the program so i would write that and then get contributors in from around the world so that we weren't teaching everything from my small town Scottish experience that wouldn't work in a programme that's this diverse where the people on the course have got such extreme life experience um, it was never my place to lead discussions on that so um, I always got people in to do that and as time went on the alumni would lead um, so that was really good but um forgot what I was saying <laughs> oh yeah so they had the course and then it just so happened that one of the partners that was going to do the mentoring programme they couldn't do it anymore, so that also came over to me. So in the end, I was um, responsible for the teaching, pastoral support, mentoring programme, and the Cambridge part of the residential. So in the middle of the year in June, the winners, not the runners-up, uh, which is a shame, but I suppose you can't get everybody over, they would come over to the UK and do a few days teaching at Cambridge, then they'd go into London and go to Google DeepMind or... Um, Facebook and some of the kind of uh, London-based um, social projects like Represent Radio um, or the Red Thread um, or Uprising, like so really good organisations that the Queen's Young Leaders Programme, which is split in two, one's the teaching side that I ran, they also had a grants programme for organisations that were maybe a bit too advanced to be on the Queen's Young Leaders, they were the next step up, so they had more of a grants thing. Um, so year one was chaos because I was hired with a month before the programme started to write this whole programme and plan it. So that was just mental. Like I was putting out a module while I was trying to write the next one. And that was really good though, because year one, who we call my firstborns, but they essentially created half of the course. You know, I had to be really open with them and do it as kind of a bit of a co-design job of, this is what I think is going to work. You need to tell me if it's not good. 
Um, and one of the biggest things was, it wasn't so much about the content, it was that Cambridge had got this VLE, the virtual learning environment, and it came obvious so quickly that a lot of the Queen's Young Leaders just didn't have the technology or the bandwidth to be able to use it. So over the four years, each year, I kept trying different platforms and stuff, and by the end we went from this all singing, all dancing educational platform to me teaching on Workplace, which is basically like a closed network Facebook. So it's just looks like Facebook, but all of the groups and everything is internal, so it's only them in there, um, and through WhatsApp. And instead of loading everything onto this platform, I made these uh, interactive P PDFs, and we'd send them out on a data stick to everybody at the start of the year. So even if... Because in year one, you know, we had people saying, oh, um, they managed to send me a text message saying, I'm not going to get into town for the internet for three weeks. Can you tell me what bits to print off? Or, um, you know, when the programme was planned, which before I came along, I think a lot of these things hadn't been really acknowledged. Also the fact that, you know, we have a fairly big group who represent development for disabilities. So we had blind students, deaf students, um, those with dyslexia. Although Commonwealth is all English-speaking countries, there are quite a lot that actually they have a language that comes first and maybe English is taught later on in school or um yeah that kind of thing so there was a lot of work to, to make sure that it was really accessible practically and then also um how do you design a course for some like in year one when the Queen's Young Leaders had left school at 10 because they had to go and help the family earn some money and we also had an Oxford University lecturer and that was the sweep of the um, educational level. And so how do you create a plan that enables both of those people to get something out of it? Um, yeah, so that was kind of, those were our challenges. But yeah, they come to me in January and then they learn six months and then go to the UK. And I try and include the ones that aren't there as much as possible so they don't feel left behind because I know that it could feel a bit like you're looking at all the fun through the glass mirror and you're not there window not mirror um <laughs> and then they'd come back and it'd be really hard to get them back because um part of their package is that uh would do a big pr pack and each young leader would have a whole press pack sent to their country so suddenly like they have a little bit of um oh wow i've won the award that's great oops um and then they come to the uk and at that point all these press packs are sent out globally so by the time that they get back from that trip of 10 days you know they're being there's meetings with presidents they're being put on their television they're like massive increase of attention and so it's really difficult that was one of our hardest things is because the the visit was in the middle of the year you're giving people a little bit of education and then massive amounts of attention and then expecting them to just come back and keep studying again like that was never going to happen so I had to become quite flexible with that and yeah, I was just like, dip in and out, come back next year and study, don't worry, like, we'll make it work. Um, but that also led to quite a lot of, um, there's a lot of pressure on those Queen's Young Leaders. Um, actually, one of the Queen's Young Leaders, who is great, you can look them up, they're called Jacob Thomas, and um, they said to me, uh, leadership is not linear, and achievement is not linear. And I think that was really important for me to understand that a lot of these 
young leaders are on this straight line of you get this award, you do this, you do this. But a lot of them had so much pressure and this attention that they get through the media. Suddenly they're not just feeling responsible to maybe the people they help in the charity, 100 people. Suddenly they're responsible to every person in their country who has sickle cell. And they're held up for these things and the pressure is massive. So mental health was a really big thing on the programme. Um, and something that we had to deal with. I ended up writing a module called The Island that was all about finding space and putting yourself first. And I know it's a cliche, the self-care thing, but um, there's a lot of countries in the world where that's not a thing, um, where depression and mental illness is seen as a huge weakness. I mean, there are... It's funny, sometimes the students say to me, oh, I want to say something, but you'll be offended. And I'm like, I'm very rarely offended ever. You know, there's a student in um, Nigeria who said depression is seen as a as a white man's disease. So it's seen as something that, you know, if you have everything and you don't have any challenges, then you have the time to become depressed. Um, which I was like, no, of course I'm not offended. It's really important to understand why you know you can set up a um there's another student in Uganda that set up another mental health charity and there are huge huge reasons why people wouldn't come and seek help um and it's quite bad still in the UK but it's getting a lot better but there are far larger barriers in other places so I think that was why a couple of years ago I sort of came out (laughs) to the students about my mental health because I thought I'm in a position where I know I'm good at work I will be employable I can keep working and I can probably be honest at this state that we're in the UK now about the mental health issues that I do have there's a lot of students that don't have that and maybe I can do a bit of good by being open with them and once I'd done that the emails that came in (laughs) from the students that were like oh I have this and I thought, oh, we need to be better at that. Um, so when I went for my next job um, interview, I was really clear on it and said, you know, this is something I have. It doesn't stop me doing work. It just stops me doing work perhaps in the pattern that we would expect. You know, I can produce a lot. And then there are times when I can produce nothing. Um, but is it, do you th- I think it's fair to say that you're, you're at an advanced level of your understanding yeah. of your own mental health, whereas a lot of people, I mean, they might they might not know they have an issue, or they might yeah. know they have an issue, they just don't know what it is or how to control it. Or yeah, well, I didn't. I don't think till I was about thirty-two. So, uh, mum got diagnosed with lung cancer, I think, in twenty sixteen. Um, and she waited till I'd come back from holiday like nice mummies do. Um, so I got back from this holiday. I was like, ah. Um, so that was quite scary. But then she got it all clear. Um, and then the following year in 2017, some other stuff happened. And then last year in 2018, mum got diagnosed. It had come back and it was stage four. And then my friend, uh, Katie Allen, who I don't know if people might have heard of, she... Um, committed suicide in Paulmont prison uh, in last summer last year and um, that was just there was a lot of things that happened at once and I just couldn't cope at all I ended up having three weeks off work um, but it was funny I went into the doctor and I was like she said have a week have a couple of weeks off and I was like I'll maybe take three days off and she was like 
no, no, let's have some actual days off. And I was like, but I can't. I'm the only person there like that can do all the work. Um, and I ended up having the three weeks off and then my uh, coordinators at the time managed everything brilliantly and it was quite, you know, a bit of a knock to the ego. It's like, oh yeah, they but don't yeah, really I, need I, me. But it was I good think, to learn that. I think there's a... You do have that. You build up that picture in your mind that uh-huh. everything revolves around you. That, yeah. that you are... Because... Uh, in a lot of ways you were like the core of that yeah. but that you think you drop me out of the equation oh, ever, the world will, will end no and they were amazing I came in and I was like oh you did great <laughs> and so I made sure to tell them a lot that they were really yeah I was so impressed with that um, and then it also I think that when we were talking about pressure I realised they could handle it and so I probably got better a lot faster um, but that was quite Hard, and then I've been trying to help out with the. There's been um, some press campaigns, hashtag Katie Allen with an A, not an E, um, around safety in Palmont and the fact that they're not. Um, just last week there was a paper that came out and it was like violence in prisons up, blah, blah, blah. And then everyone was like, no, these are all suicides. Suicides in prison are up. Like violence makes it sound like, you know, inter prison violence but a lot of it's down to the fact that they don't have strong mental health um, support and Katie if you read about it like I would go on if anyone's interested you can just google her name and it'll come up she had so many warning signs massive amounts of warning signs that the um, prison didn't take any real notice of and she had just turned 21 and been moved had been moved or was about to be moved up into the older women's prison and that was when she killed herself because she couldn't handle the bullying. Um, so that was a bit of a tricky year, I think, for me. But yeah, mental health-wise, it's really important. I'm really quite passionate about it now, about how we set up our working environment and what we allow people to do. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of people I know that have mental health issues and they're not any worse at the work in fact they probably work harder because they know that there might be a time when there's going to be a little gap so if we can practically map that in the way that we set up our teams and our working environments you know sometimes it can be a benefit um as long as everyone's on the same page yeah and i think it's challenging those sort of prerequisites the social expectations mm-hmm. of um people wanting to be busy and working hard yeah. and like you doing f- 70 hour weeks is uh-huh. because you're really successful when you're doing everything right whereas actually it's the exact opposite yeah and I you know like I make a joke of it that um, when I got the Queen's Young Leaders job I used to like run I don't know like was training for half marathons all the time I would run and went to the gym six days a week and was very slim and all that and then I just had four years of like mega stress massively understaffed um yeah it just really affected my health because you know there wasn't that moment I think because I was working all hours teaching at four in the morning or at 12 at night because you couldn't have it nine to five because of where the students were um yeah I really didn't look after myself in a way that I teach them to do like a lot of things that I'm like do this and don't do it myself like, um, like what like about that working you know like you need to have time for yourself um you need to be honest when you need to hand things over, all these kind of things about, you know, just mental health stuff, about looking after yourself, which I don't do. I was really bad at doing. 
at having a routine and even now like I've finished the job I at least have probably a week's worth of work to do still that I won't be getting paid for <laughs> um but maybe that's my own problem because I get a bit emotionally attached to things and I want to finish them off I do also think that's a, a problem that only you experience I think um, it's it's in your nature if you spend half your life doing this thing that you're yeah. going to become emotionally attached especially if it's in an area that you enjoy working in yeah. um, there's there's obviously certain jobs that people don't have that attachment therefore yeah. there's no fulfillment in that but True. then you've got to balance that the opposite way where you do get that fulfillment therefore you're doing things that you shouldn't be outside of yeah hours I think years. for me it was a real learning curve of making sure that you go in workplaces where your values match so like, up to this this point you've you've done like a lot of things in a relatively short sp- space of time yeah no? um and i mean you you give the feeling that you have real confidence in your ability mm-hmm. so where where does your expertise lie how do you how do you where do you see your expertise you think personally like do you know, I was listening to your other podcasts and I was like, if you ask me that question, <laughs> <laughs> I was, who was it? It was um, Annie Mars one and she was like, well, I don't really have. And you were like, if you're good at anything, you have an expertise. And I thought, oh, yeah, I suppose. I think, look, I'm very good at, I have a broad and shallow base of skills. So that makes me in an ideal position to work with a large group and be able to meet them on their own, you know, where they're coming from. You know, I haven't, stayed in textiles for 15 years so I've worked with a lot of different people from a lot of different countries and that enables me to speak to someone for a fairly short amount of time and figure out how to best support them Um, I'm really good at translating so you know you could tell me some things about the work that you do and I could probably translate it to an audience in a way that they would understand and be interested so communication I've got, this is cheesy, I'll regret this, I'll tell you to take it out after. Um, like, I've got a lot of love to give. I really love people. And, like, the Queen's Young Leaders or when I used to support businesses, I have a real emotion and passion for them. And so that makes it easy for me, whether I'm supporting them through getting them the right mentor or just listening to them because something bad has happened in their life. Um, you know, it's probably something that you know it's help and hindrance I think sometimes I take on too much of other people's emotions and that's maybe not good for me in terms of my own energy but equally um, I can be trusted by those people that I give my time to I'm not going to ever give my time to people on a surface level um, and that maybe allows me to have some really deep relationships with people and be able to help them to the best that I can I probably have to translate that a bit I've done other projects where I don't really have that kind of face-to-face time and it still works it just have to approach it in a different way and um, it's maybe more about perceived needs rather than confirmed needs um, is there <laughs> I don't um, love the queen <laughs> I mean, that's another point we haven't talked about the Queen. We haven't talked about the Queen. I'm assuming you're now Bezzy's with Bezzy's with the Queen. Bloodlines. I think she might know who I am, <laughs> <laughs> but but maybe not. She meets so many people. But then I don't think so. What? 
obviously the name of the program but like how is the the royal family genuinely connected Mm -hmm. to that the work that was going on um well the main thing queens and ladies is of course they come over and they go to Buckingham palace and the queen personally hands over their award to them um prince harry has always been very passionate like he's got a real love for the commonwealth the same way that the queen does you know she really loves this thing it's one of her maybe that and Balmoral <laughs> don't know but she really cares from obviously what I know it's something she's passionate about and Harry's picked that up and whenever he's gone over to visit the different Queen's Young Leaders he goes in you know with open mind open heart he doesn't stand on ceremony he wants to be able to just get involved and meet people um, and now my new job um which I will start soon, is with the Queen's Commonwealth Trust. And that will basically take this vision of a Commonwealth, of a Commonwealth that has a population that is very young. And how do we um, make more sustainable effort for development to be led by the people in those countries and not led um, from London? So with Queen's Young Leaders, you know, they were one-off exceptional individuals and it was led from a hub of London and Cambridge. And obviously we got people in and we changed things, but it was kind of centralised, and I think the Queen's Commonwealth Trust is about increasing that impact so that there are ways for people to feel recognised and know that they're doing good things, whether they're a 10-year-old who's trying to get people to pick up plastic bottles and not use straws, through to maybe an older lady in a remote village who teaches the kids reading every night after school or if they don't have school, you know, on a weekend or people that do small things a lot that don't want to be leaders. They don't have that need to be held up as, you know, do the conference circuits and do all the social media. There's a lot of lifestyles and cultures and ways of living where people are doing great things but they're under the radar and they don't necessarily want to be above it. So how do, how does the Commonwealth work to include people and support them in a much broader way that really uses their expertise to figure out how that looks? That sounds like an exciting challenge for the for the future. I know, it's very exciting. <laughs> Maybe there'll be some travel with this one too. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously we're in a great place because we have the Queen's Young Leaders as that um, we have those hubs now where we have kind of between like three and ten Queen's Young Leaders in each country so it's a really good starting point for saying you know where do we think this should go who should we be contacting who are the people who uh, you've heard of and how do we celebrate them yeah and just building that, that network and that community around yeah. the, the great people that you've already yeah. sort of helped nurture along mm-hmm. the way yeah and they're all great and for every Queen's Young Leader I, without a doubt there's probably I don't know another 10,000 around there doing similar things that weren't picked or were too young or never heard of it in the first place um, because you know I think we would be naive to say that we reached every corner of the Commonwealth we certainly didn't We, um, I think there's really good opportunities for um, more work with Aboriginal and First Nations people um, were certainly not reached in the way they could have done with Queen's Young Leaders but you know it was the first step and I think we 
have a lot of opportunity to make it a lot more inclusive as we go forward. So what is it about like the, the work that you do mm-hmm. that gives you fulfilment? <laughs> like what, I mean, like what, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets you excited about what, what you do? Okay. I l- you know, earlier on I said we'll go into more detail about being the details. Um, like I, I love a new idea. That's where I come into my own. Actually, there's a amazing woman called Eugenie Teasley who used to run something called Spark and Metal and now she works for Uber, kind of um, working in with their culture and stuff. And she was somebody that taught me, you know, some people are better at taking disparate bits of information and an idea and putting that together and building it and getting people on board. And then you don't necessarily need to stay there. And I think that's really where I sit. So um, I love something new. I love the Queen's Young Leaders because it, it iterated every year. It was a new course um, to meet the needs of a completely new set of people. But I am not great with details. And so the re- like I had these two coordinators and they were just phenomenal. Uh, you know, one of them, Rosie, I'd just be like, I have this stuff and can you make it into an Excel sheet that does these things? I don't even know if that's possible or not because I'm not very good at Excel. <laughs> and she would just do magic stuff. And so I think what gets me out of bed is the possibilities that you can come up with. You know, when I get really into something, I can work for days and days of like, we do this, and I can pull in this and I get quite excitable. And that's what I love. And what makes me want to stay in bed is if I have to do all of that admin detaily stuff so you can so a, a strong team for me is really important that i have some support so you work it to a point and then you say right okay now you can lead on that and go and like you can then set that off to to realize the full yeah the full thing. like i think that would be the ideal world so i think you know with the queen's young leaders i didn't need that so much because every year i changed the course but actually in the last <laughs> in the last year i like completely changed the course and i brought on like five new modules and in hindsight I didn't need to do that (laughs) like I didn't need to always be adding more and that's a flaw that I have of kind of you're instructed to do ABC on a contract and I'd be like but D&E could be great I can find some money and that's something I need to learn is you know what is our remit and all these ideas they're great but they should maybe go on like an ideas pile they don't all need to be actioned but I think because that's the place where I feel most confident is running an idea through to fruition mm-hmm. you know it's quite i need it's good for me to have people go do you have time for that um so that's good um at least i know i've kind of learned that team's really important that i have you know some people that encourage and some people that just give me a whisper and go maybe not the time for that <laughs> <laughs> oh no the people at my new job they're gonna be like come wait is that contract signed yet um <laughs> I'm, I'll be really good, I promise. <laughs> so, uh, just before we finish up, is is there anything that you've been watching, listening to, or reading recently that you would recommend? Yes. Um, so, my top favourite thing at the moment is a podcast called The Grief Cast, um, and it's by um, Carrie Lloyd, who's a comedian, and she, her dad died um, quite suddenly. He was ill, and I think he died within two weeks. Um when she was about 15 and so 
she has always had this persona of the grief girl. Like whenever a parent's friend or somebody dies, they're like, oh, go to Carrie and she can sort you out. Like she knows the things that you need. And um, yeah, she launched this podcast. She's a comedian and she gets in all these famous comedians that, you know, UK and abroad to come and talk about their experiences of grief. And it's just wonderful. Like, you know, you have somebody who has something as insane. One of the um, podcasts, somebody, the person being interviewed, they had lost six people in less than a year, like from just, you know, normal old age through to like um, illness that came on suddenly, accidents. Um, And so obviously her grief story was like all encompassing. Um, And then there's other people who, you know, maybe there's an accident and it's just funny that whether it's natural or it's extreme, it's massive to everyone. There's no like, there's no winning on the in the grief game. Like you don't get a nice one or, a, and I think it's taught me a lot. Obviously, with mum, um, she's on immunotherapy at the moment, and I hope it will all go away. But I'm kind of the person that needs all the information and the worst case scenario, and then anything better than that is good for me. But I was really I thought it was a depression and then I was listening to this podcast and all these symptoms and I was like oh that's what I've got and it was called anticipatory grief and you essentially are grieving something that is yet to come but because it's on the way or you know it could be on the way that can give you a full mourning thing even though it's not happened but then as with all good mental illness it comes with a load of guilt so you're like oh, my mum is still there and she's fine, but you're planning when she's going to die and what you're going to do. And and because I'm a planner, I went a bit mental and started sending her all these books of, like, um, letters to my daughter or, like, um, a book for my daughter that was like, oh, my favourite teddy at two was dot, dot, dot for her to fill in. Now, I'm a chatterbox, as you can tell, but my mum is not. And she's, like, quite an internal like personal person and it didn't really dawn on me that I was just sending her all these things that were like you're dying soon (laughs) (laughs) can you tell me what my favourite colour was when I was four Um, and but the podcast really helped me with that of understanding that these desperate feelings you had like I had a whole thing of I was shopping online to see how much a vac pack machine would cost you know like that maybe chefs use or like with product design backpacking because I was like maybe I can back get mum to wear an item of clothing and then for like wear it through the day overnight and then backpack it and backpack like 30 of them so I can open them one a year and they'll smell like her and I was like doing these mad <laughs> things that were you know clear kind of grief frenzy um but that podcast made me be able to really laugh about these things I was doing but then also realize that they were a reaction and not something I'm going to really need. I might like them, but, you know, I shouldn't be putting her in uncomfortable places because of this desperation um, that I have. Like, I can't... She's not a chatter, and she's not a big sentimentalist, so getting her to fill those books in is something that I would do, but we're different people, and so it was, yeah, good. And there's also just some really funny stuff, like one woman's granny was brought up in Nazi Germany and she's a bit like you know indoctrinated um, and just but quite a funny old lady and she used to fart all the time and blame 
this cat called Mitzi and she'd be like, oh, Mitzi. Like, it's some real hysterical stuff in there, but some really poignant things. That- but then I think like humour and death yeah. are generally not things that we put together. No. Um, and there's no good reason why they shouldn't be. Like, there is a lot that can be mm-hmm. um, addressed and looked at through through comedy. I think we see like a big rise in the sort of political satire yeah. um, recently for good reason. Yes. And I think there's lots of other areas where co- comedy could be utilised much better. And I think mm-hmm. death is one of them because it gets, it makes it a lot more accessible. Mm-hmm. And podcasts are a great format to do that in. Yeah. And not just because I run a podcast, but because it is generally a, a great way of telling those stories and, and um, yeah, getting the message out to people in, in a really nice, accessible way. I yeah, think. I just love, I'm a big podcast addict, actually. I love them. Um, like, I posted a thing to you, actually, on Twitter that was, I don't know if you've seen that image before. There's no, a meme. Um, there's a guy sitting beside an ice cream freezer and there's an advert with three women eating their ice creams and laughing. And he sat beside it on the floor with an ice cream laughing. It's like how it feels, what it feels like to listen to a podcast. And it is, it can be really good if you're isolated or, you know, you don't really want to be seeing people, but it's a lot more like you are there in the room than just listen to a novel, say. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think they're really helpful. And in terms of learning, there's a lot of people that learn better through listening than reading and so you know there's quite a lot of educational reasons why I'll share different podcasts with the students or whatnot yeah so um, if (laughs) anyone wants to find out more about you or what you do where would they find you on the internet Um, I am well if you type in F Brown work on Google there's all sorts that'll come up but that'll come up with my LinkedIn Twitter um, I've got a new website that should probably be launched soon called www.fbrandwork.com We don't use the W's anymore. Yeah, but I still double tap after my full stops, which makes <laughs> Jonathan Baldwin have a fit. Because <laughs> I'm not typewriter anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, that shows I'm oldie. Um, yeah, so there's stuff on there. I've also launched a new thing. Um, I'm going to change the name soon, so I'll tell you what it's going to be called. It's going to be called It's Going to Be Good, um, which is basically a way for me to put out the materials I'm making and open up some educational courses to the masses. Um, but I'm working on this. A load of stuff I can't really talk about. <laughs> Cut all that. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you very much. Great. So that was Frances. Um, yeah, thank you very much to her for coming on and doing the podcast. Uh, yeah, I mean, such a sort of open and honest conversation. Um, she, I mean, I know Frances quite well. Yeah, she she was really comfortable with just opening up, and I think that's just her the way she she approaches everything. And I think that what she said about having a lot of love to give is so true, um, and the way that she approaches sort of all the challenges that face her so yeah thank you very much to francis for coming on doing the podcast um yeah i mean that's pretty much it um yeah if you don't already then why not follow the podcast on instagram or twitter or facebook or wherever you like um it's at ccc dundee on twitter and instagram and it's facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash ccc dundee but yeah go and check us out and you be able to keep up to date with all the new episodes, content, everything that's happening with the podcast. 
But yeah, that's it. So until next week, goodbye. <laughs>